It is April 19th, 2017. I am Levi Johnny Griffin, and this is Word Today, your place for accurate Bible insights, where the only opinion that matters is God's. Welcome back. Uh, we're in our month of deep, going deep into Bible information, and today I wanted to just answer some questions. You guys mail in your questions, and I love it. Keep them coming, wordtoday.org at gmail.com. Keep those questions pouring in. Uh, these are actually some questions I was asked around my birthday in June uh, of last year, and I emailed back a group the answers, and I kind of felt I wanted to go over the inf- the uh, information and the answers right here on the air. Buckle up. Let's go. Question number one. Can God answer the prayers of someone who prays to have bad things happen to someone else? I love this question. It's a great question. It really poses three things. Number one. Who does God listen to? Does God listen to everybody or does he just listen to a few people? I like it. Number two, how should that person present their prayer? Is there a right way, you know, or a wrong way to say something? Uh, Should I frame my prayer in a certain way? Hmm. What should that person pray? What what is off limits? What is off the table uh, to pray? Or is there anything that's that's off the table? Maybe everything is uh, no holds barred and you can pray for what you want. Let's let's see. Let's look into the Bible. Remember, the only opinion that matters is God's. So let's find out what God says about this. James 516. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective of a righteous person. So now we have to consider what uh, for one is a righteous person and what what the prayers of a righteous person look like and be framed like. Well, the Bible tells us what a righteous person is. It tells us Roman 310 that no one is righteous, not even one. But it follows up in the very next chapter, Romans 422, a chapter over and reminds us that, hey, we're not righteous because we walk on water because we're perfect. We're righteous because we believe in Jesus. So our righteous isn't ours. It's imputed or attributed to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross covers our sins, and therefore it it makes us righteous, not because we are naturally righteous, but because God looks at the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us and considers us as righteous. Okay? So now we have we know that we're righteous because of the shed blood of Jesus and not because what we do. It's our faith in what Jesus did at the cross that imputes that righteousness or has that righteousness imputed to us, right? So what would a righteous person pray for and what should we do with our newfangled righteousness? Well, we, we learned that faith means to be persuaded. So if we are persuaded that the blood of Jesus covers us on the cross, then we also have to be persuaded in the things that Jesus believes in. And what does Jesus believe in? He believes in loving your neighbor as yourself, not hating your brother. Leviticus nineteen seventeen through 19 says this. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly. Oh, come on. I love that. Confront people directly so you'll not be held guilty for their sin. What does that mean? That means if, if someone else is sinning, And you talk about them versus talking to them. God will hold you accountable for their sin. You say, man, why does that person lie so much? Why did that person steal so much? Why does that person, why are they bitter all the time? Have you been praying for them? Ask yourself, has you, have you confronted them and with the love of God? 
Have you talked to them about their problem? Maybe they're bitter because their husband is beating them at home or their wife is cheating on them. Have you found out so you could pray with them about that situation? Maybe they're stealing because they're a klepto. Their brother stole and they don't know how to stop. Have you prayed about getting them help? Have you talked to them about their sin and about trying to help them? You presented them with a card to try to get into a meeting. What have you done? God sent you to notice the sin to be the answer to it. Have you done anything? If you haven't done anything, then God says the blood is on your hands. You're the sinner, not them. Because you didn't have the gumption to do something. What does Revelation tell us? Revelation say the cowards go to hell. He lists cowardry with adultery, murder, it, cowardry. Why? Because he says the problems of the world is due to Christians not standing up and doing something. Saying something and not going trying to eradicate the infidel like these radical, ridiculous Muslims, but by trying to go pray for people. And I don't want to call them ridiculous by these misled Muslims. I pray in the name of Jesus that God touches them. I apologize for saying they're they're ridiculous, but they are radical and they need the blood of Jesus to cover them. We're we're supposed to, to love them. We have to love them. We have to love everyone that is in sin. And it's our duty to talk to them, whether they're blowing up a building are talking uh, negative about somebody. Verse 18, Leviticus 19 says this. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 19, you must obey all my decrees. Listen to what I'm saying is what God is saying. Listen to this. This is good stuff, man. Listen to this. So we know a righteous person is someone that is covered in the blood of Jesus, and they're covered under the blood of Jesus because of their faith. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, his only son, so that everyone that believes in Jesus and what he did on the cross can be saved to have the opportunity to be saved, right? And I'm paraphrasing, but that's John 3, 16. Look it up if you don't have it memorized by heart, because that's what it is. So now we know that what faith is, and we know what God's decrees are. So would God answer the prayers of uh or can God answer the prayers of someone who prays to have bad things happen to someone else? He can, but he won't. It says, do not nurse hatred in your heart. Do not seek revenge. That if there's a, someone has a sin or is doing something wrong, that is your obligation, not your prerogative, but your obligation to go and pray with them, talk to them, pray for them, see how you can help. And if they reject it, keep going on your knees and pray and pray and pray and pray. Ask God to open up a door so you can talk to them. Maybe they're on a plane, plane being rude. And you only had a five second chance to say, hey, man, I noticed you were being rude to the stewardess. She's doing the best she can. Uh, is there anything I can help you with? No. Go jump off the plane. OK, sir. Hey, man, just I love you with the love of Christ and I'll be praying for you. God has awesome things in your future. Lift them up, build them up. They may have been beat down by the world. Are you building them up? So, no, God isn't answering your evil prayers. Because it comes out of an evil heart. So no. All right. Next question. Oh, and they have a side note in here. Like, can you pray for ISIS leader to die or something like that? And once again, no. You have to pray with them, pray for them, uh, and have the, the faith that God will work out what you cannot directly affect. But once again, if you can directly affect it, then you are held accountable to directly affect it. Question number two. Can the grace... Uh, of God or the covering of God leave you? If so, how do you regain it back? Well, what is grace? What is grace? Grace is not getting something you deserve. The covering of God is the blank of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, of God on your life? But this is a great question. It makes us say, what is grace exactly? Uh, and two, and how do you obtain grace or lose grace? Romans 11 helps us with that. Uh, and it says this, verse five. So too, so also, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If it were based on works, grace would no longer be grace. It seems like we kind of covered this in the prayer, right? We're not saved because we walk on water and because we're perfect. We're not. We're saved because of what God did on the cross, that blood that Jesus shed on the cross that's covering our lives, that when I screw up and I touch something, taste something, look at something, think about something that I'm not supposed to act in a way that is contrary to the 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 holiness that God has on me. And remember, holiness means set apart. And the Bible says that if one piece, if, if the root is set apart, the whole tree is set apart. If a piece of the dough is set apart, the whole lump is set apart. So if my mouth is set apart to talk to you about Jesus, which means my eyes have to be set apart. Because if the mouth is set apart, my whole body is set apart. So what am I trying to say then? I'm trying to say that it is not necessary for you to walk on water, as I say, to be perfect, but if you are set apart, your desire, your focus is to be holy. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. If you're set apart for righteousness, then be righteous. Okay? So, can you lose your grace or your covering? Listen, Paul is talking about your salvation here. Freedom from going to hell. Freedom from being separated permanently from God. And it works because of your faith, not because of your works, but without works, your evangelism, talking to people around you that aren't saved, then are you truly faithful? Do you truly have faith? Think about it. If you believe a building is on fire, but refuse to get out, do you truly believe it's on fire? Do you truly believe there is a danger there? Or do you kind of believe? We're going to kind of get deeper into that at the end. Now, with that, grace is a free gift. It is a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift. It's a gift from God. That means your grace is given truly by God. And you've obtained grace. How? By faith. You're believing of what Jesus did on the cross. So can you lose your grace? Well, grace is a free gift and it's obtained uh, not because you earned it or worked for it. It's it's it was given to you freely and giving to everybody freely that believed in what Jesus did at the cross. So can you, you lose your grace? Well, how do you lose a gift? So typically, no. Now, can you lose your faith? And which is your access to the gift? And I guess guess. Yeah. So to. You necessarily lose the gift. You lose access to the gift. So if the gift was in a room and you stopped believing the door was there, then you'd stop going into the room. Do you follow me? So grace is a free gift given to all those that believe. So the only way to really lose that grace or your salvation will be to stop that belief. But remember, believing uh, a faith means to be persuaded. We went over this uh, last Bible study or Bible study a few ago. It means to be persuaded. Faith literally translates. Uh, translates as to persuade is to persuade you to believe in the cross, persuade you to believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, persuade you to believe that God's way in righteousness is a better way. It's the 99% rule though. 
humans will act on belief uh, other than their natural impulse, because the Bible does say we're natural sinners. Uh, we're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. So, but we'll act on belief other than impulse when they, when the belief, um, when they believe the impulse will harm them. What am I trying to say? That if your belief is stronger than your impulse, you'll follow the belief, not the impulse. If you have an impulse to take a hundred bucks off of a desk, but you believe there's cameras in the room watching you and there's guards on the other end of that camera, your belief that you won't get away with it is stronger than your belief that you will. So thus you won't take it. So what does that mean? If you believe that, Hey, you know, I am holy, meaning set apart and I just can't, you know, stay up all night watching pornography. I can't have eight girlfriends that I'm sleeping with. I can't constantly lie on people. I can't constantly gossip. You know, the Bible talks about gossip worse than it talks about adultery. So for you ladies out there and you fellas out there that just love to talk about other people's business, know that God condemns that to a stronger extent than adultery. Now, no sin is larger than the other, but God is adamant about gossip. So I wouldn't necessarily want to push that envelope. Right. So if you gossip, if you're just someone that's bitter all the time, if you're someone that can find a, a negative viewpoint on everything, you're the happiest person comes along and they tell you how great their day is. And you don't have a bad day. You just have a bad decade. Everything for the last 10 years, your your bunions hurt, your daughter didn't come to your graduation your 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 son uh disappointed you people didn't that owe you money never pay let it go get a positive outlook there's people dying of cancer with more positive outlooks than some of these people out here that are totally healthy working good jobs making close to six figures change your attitude get healthy get happy right so regardless it is that 99% rule it's important it is very, very important to understand that we act off belief and belief means to be persuaded. Right. So we can't lose that grace per se uh, by making us making a mistake. But if we throw our faith away, then, hey, we may be throwing the grace away with it. Number three, where does someone go to when they die? Great question. Whoever you are that sent that in. Uh, I love you. Tremendous question. Uh, and that's one of great debate. Some do you go to heaven when you die? And, you know, are you in hell when you die instantly? Um, then where does the where's judgment day kind of play into all of this? Um, it's a great question. Let's go to second Corinthians five. Um, and the King James version says this. We are conf- We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And that is that is quoted all the time to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, you know, people sing songs when I go to glory. And, and it's just and it's so exciting. Right. The minute you die, you're instantly with God. But, you know, here on, I always say on the show, listen, context, context. I always talk to people when I counsel them, when I when we talk about the Bible, things have to be in context. If they're not in context, you're literally just making things up. And like our new motto is, hey, the only opinion that matters here is God's. So let's put this in context. Now let's read the whole scripture and let's put it in context. Going from the King James Version, because who still reads, art thou how will it beeth? Let's go to NIV. Let's go to something that is clearly understood. Verse starting at verse four, not at verse eight. These tents we now live in, he's talking about our body, are like a heavy burden and we groan. We have pains, we have, you know, uh, we get tired, we get sore, things happen. 
But it says, but we don't do this just because we want to leave these bodies that will die. It is because we want to change them from the from bodies that will never uh, change them for bodies that will never die. Let me read that again. It is because we want to change them for or exchange them for bodies that will never die. God is God is the one who makes all of this possible. He has given us his spirit to make us certain that he will do it. So always be cheerful. As long as we are in these bodies, we are away from the Lord. Verse seven. But we live by faith, not by what we see. We should be cheerful because we would rather live. We would rather leave these bodies and be at home with the Lord. But whether we are at home with the Lord or away from him, we still try our best to please him. After all, Christ will judge each of us for the good or the bad that we do while living in these bodies. The key thing here is what he says. It says what? But whether we are at home with the Lord, and you hear me scratching my beard. Man, this is a great mic. You can hear me. That's me scratching my beard right there. Uh, man, this thing picks up even me thinking. Uh, but, but whether we are at home with the Lord or away from him, we still try our best to please him. Listen, it is not talking about when we die, we'll instantly be with the Lord. It's just saying, hey, you know, while we're in these meat bags called bodies, we'll, we'll, we'll enjoy it. But we understand that. As long as we have these bodies, we don't have our glorified bodies, which means that we're not with God. The guy is, is basically just talking out loud, not in a bad way, but he's saying, hey, we understand that, hey, as long as we have these bodies, we'll have problems. But one day we'll exchange these bodies for heavenly bodies. It has nothing to do with the time frame. Um, really, that has nothing to do with death, but more being in heaven with God one day. But there are some scriptures that, that point out specifically death and dying. And that, that, that transition, let's go to Luke eight. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. We talked about the scripture. Remember, uh, verse 52, the house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. We went over the scripture. You, if, if this is your first co- podcast, uh, with me, Levi Johnny Griffin, and word today, you need to go back and listen to all the other podcasts. Um, it, it's, it's that, that particular one was great. Um, but listen, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. This is in the Old Testament. This is in Paul. This is Jesus saying, Hey, she isn't dead. She's only sleeping. And you say, Okay, maybe there's a few of you that take that literally. Let's go to John 11 11, just, just to clear it up. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But now we'll go and wake him. Now, for any Christian that knows the Lazarus story, you realize Lazarus was what we would consider dead. He had been embalmed. So if he wasn't dead, then he was dead when they embalmed him, right? He had been wrapped in burial clothes, covered in in flowers and fragrances, put in a uh, sepulcher, and basically they buried him. And he had been there for days in his tomb. So by all... uh, that any stretch of the imagination, Lazarus was cold and dead. But God, but God says, listen, he's just asleep. And then he calls him forth. So it, it looks that when you die, you don't instantly go to hell. You don't instantly go uh, to heaven. You don't instantly get transported to judgment. You go to sleep. Revelation 20 says this. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. So it shows that, listen, Jesus is saying you're asleep. Revelation says, hey, there's time periods when people wake up uh, to get judged and go to heaven or go to hell. 
So when you die, it would appear by all the evidence here that you are, uh, for all intents and purposes, asleep. Now, are you dreaming? Hey, that's a that's a question you'll know one day. We'll all know one day, right? Uh, but you are asleep. Um, and then at the at a certain time, you'll be resurrected. We'll all be resurrected uh, and have to face God. And we'll from there, we'll be with him for eternity or uh, separated from him. So great question. Uh, really, really great question. Uh, we'll take two more. How will God judge those people who have not heard the gospel? Love it. Love it. Second uh, Peter three, nine reads this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that says, hey, God didn't God didn't just, you know, he didn't make a hell, throw some charcoal and some light right in there and say, hey, let's see how many people we can stuff in here. He says, hey, he doesn't want anyone to perish. Think about it. God is a father. He's a father to Islam, to Christians, to Jews. He's a father to the planets, to the universe, to everything that's uh, inanimate, to everything that's living. He is the father. And what father wants to see his children destroyed and die? It says here in Second Peter, like, listen, this isn't this isn't my desire. This isn't God is saying this. I don't want anyone to die. Romans 10, 13 to 15 underscores this. Uh, and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to basically die for us so that everyone that believed in him would have the opportunity for salvation. But it does, it does point or underscore the need for evangelism in Romans 10, uh, starting at verse 13. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it keeps on. It says this. It has a caveat. How can they call on uh, basically a name they have not believed in? Now, how can they, how can they believe in that name, that a name that they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they uh, preach unless they were sent? It goes on to say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news or bring the gospel. So it says, hey, man, anyone that believes uh, has opportunity to be saved or will be saved. And how can they believe? Um, well, how, how, how can they know what to believe in and how can they believe in it? If they've not heard about it, and how can they hear about it unless someone is preaching? How can someone preach unless someone sent them? So it's saying, hey, we need to evangelize. This goes back to, uh, what was it, the first, uh, the second or third question. It is God consider, considers it a sin for you to see someone in sin and not talk to them about it, and not lovingly talk to them about it, not in a point where they feel convicted. If they feel convicted, nine times out of ten, you did it wrong. If they feel like, man, I probably need to change, then you did it right. And practice on it. You won't get it right, but you need to love them to life, not convict them to death. And there's a difference, and you'll learn as you fulfill the scriptures and you love people and you practice. Practice makes perfect. Psalm 711. God is an honest judge. He is a judge, but he's an honest judge. He and going back to Second Peter 3, 9, he didn't want anyone to die. But it also says in uh, Psalm 711 here that he is angry with the wicked every day. Listen, the Bible goes on to say, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good and just uh, at just the right time. We will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith, other believers. 
It says God is a judge, but he also won't be mocked. If you uh, are corrupt, if you're evil, you're going to you're going to pay for it. If you're kind and good, then you'll be blessed for it. So going back to the question, uh, how would God judge those who have never heard of the, the gospel? Someone is in the far bushes in Africa or on some Alaskan uh you know, peninsula or and they've never heard of the gospel or some remote part of Alaska, never heard of the gospel. What would happen then? It says God is a just God. Um, and the scripture, there's other scriptures that leads that God will, will once again base you uh, on what you have sown. The problem is what we think are good acts. God may not consider good acts. What we think are bad acts. God may not consider bad acts. It's just, you don't have the buffer of the blood of Jesus. If, God totally weighed what he thought was righteous in your life versus what was he thought was unrighteous. That would be damning for probably the majority of us. And that's maybe what the world is facing that don't know Jesus, that don't have that grace. One of the questions was about grace. I don't have the grace covering their lives. I don't have the blood soaked cross covering their sin. Um, I wouldn't want to be in one of those. Um, but once again, it says God is an honest God. So, uh, he doesn't want anyone to perish. So for those people, I wouldn't necessarily want to be in their shoes. I'm glad that I have the, the cross covering me, the blood, the sacrifice of what Jesus did on that cross covering my life. Um, but God is an honest God. He's a just God and he's a just judge. Last question. Is taking alcohol a sin? Well, uh, for all of the alcoholics out there, uh, let's, <laughs> Well, let's answer that. Not just for alcoholics, for, for everyone. First Timothy five twenty three. I read not in NASB. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's uh, the old translation says the little wine is good for the belly. Belly. So, is it telling you to drink wine? Actually, the Bible is. It's saying, hey, for those with stomach problems and ailments, it's good for you. Um, I have a citation in the uh, comments in the description bar. You can click on from Medical News Today. And the article shows that a glass of wine, um, a moderate, moderate wine on a daily basis is good for you. What is moderate? Uh, you know, a keg is not moderate. Uh, for a woman, it's a glass of wine. For a man, it's two glasses of wine. Oh, excuse me. For a woman, uh, forget that. Scratch that. Uh, for a woman, a half a glass of wine a day. And for a man, a full glass of wine a day uh, will be considered moderate. And according to medical news today, uh, dot com, your glass of wine, half a glass of wine a day for women and a glass of wine a day for men can help reduce dementia, breast cancer, colon cancer and the effects of aging. So uh, thousands of years later, medical science has proven what the God knew, what God knew, of course, uh, in the Bible stated thousands of years uh, prior. Now, so it's not a sin to drink, but there are stipulations. Remember, anything in, in uh being overindulgent in anything, overindulgent in praying can be uh, bad for you. Um, Ephesians five eighteen. Don't be drunk with wine because with uh, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, drinking half a glass for women, a glass uh, for men, unless you're an extremely lightweight, you'll probably be fine. Um, but if you're drunk, you you know at a point you shouldn't be. Uh, you can't walk. You can't think. You're blacking out. You're not remembering stuff. You're not in control of your bodily functions. You're making a fool of yourself. You're saying lewd things or saying things you would normally say. You're any slightest bit uh, socially awkward or different uh, in mind state um, than you would be. 
uh, normally, um, especially with a negative connotation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's drunk. That's too much. But a little wine, half a glass for uh, a day, according to medical news today, and a full glass for men. Um, it looks like it's okay. And we're not talking about one of those uh, Lil John and the East Side Boys gauntlets. Uh, we're talking about just a normal um, size class. Proverbs 23, and we'll end on that one. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons, for they are the way to poverty. Too much sleep clothes them in rags. So just saying, don't be drunk. All right, we're ending this with the challenge, um, the people's challenge. Uh, and the people's challenge really is just a biblical challenge to live uh, the three parts of a witness. What are the three parts of a witness? One is lifestyle. We talked about earlier in the podcast that, hey, if my mouth is holy, which means holy means set apart, that means that everything is set apart. Um, the Bible says it. If the root is set apart, the whole tree is set apart. If a part of the dough is set apart, then the entire lump is set apart. So that means if God has anointed any part of your life, your hands to write, your mouth to speak, your eyes to see, and you have vision, your mind to, to dream and, and uh, have prophecy uh, or your heart to love, God has set any part of your part and every believer has some part that's set apart, then every part. Is set apart. And with that, your lifestyle is important. Uh, if you're coming out of a strip club and we're not talking about making a sin and you repent and it's done. We're talking about a lifestyle uh, of sin where, you know, going to the strip club is what you do. You know, sleeping with a bunch of women is what you do. Uh, lying, stealing, glutton, uh, cowardness, cowardly. When it comes to things of God is what you do. Um, then there's a problem. But the people's challenge, your three parts of an effective witness. Listen. Number one part is your lifestyle. You witness more with your lifestyle than with your words. Number two, your words. Even though you witness more with your lifestyle, you still need your words. Matter of fact, uh, early in the podcast, we talked about how it was a sin. The Bible says, hey, it's a sin if your brother is falling and you don't talk to him about it. Um, and, and we also mentioned the scripture, how can they know unless someone tells them, right? Number three, connection. You're living right, you're talking right, but you can't just go tell someone about Jesus. You have to connect them, connect them with the church, connect them with some pamphlets and material. You have to connect them with a Bible. There's things that are needed. Just kind of like you can't tell hand someone a car keys and say, go drive. They need to have the car. The car needs to have gas in it. It needs to have a tune up. The spark plugs need to work. It needs to have a spare tire just in case um, something runs a flat. So you need to connect them, connect them with your church, connect them with you. And I don't believe you should invite people to church. I believe you should invite people to Christ. Um, I think we hide behind our churches. If you just come to church, just come to church. We try to get them to church. You are the church. You are the church. You are the church. When the Bible talks about the church, it wasn't talking about the building. It was talking about the people that believed. Remember to be persuaded that Jesus Christ is the answer. You are the church. So as the church, tell them about Jesus, bring them to Christ, have, uh, you know, sacraments right there. Pray with them right there. Take them to the Jordan river, baptize them right there. There, have a bathtub, fill it with water. You don't need a certificate to baptize someone. Do you love Jesus? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? God has empowered you. You better baptize them. Baptize them in the uh, the sink if you have to. Just get a big enough tub. Make sure you get them soaking wet. <laughs> Pray for them. You can do it. God has empowered you. Jesus said greater things than these. So your lifestyle, your speech, and then connect them to the gospel. Connect them to the Bible. Connect them to some awesome YouTube videos. And hey, connect them to this podcast. I want to challenge you today to connect someone with this podcast, if it's feeding you, why wouldn't you want to feed someone else? It is your duty. It's your obligation as a believer to help other believers get connected and stronger 
in Christ. Hey, continue to email me those questions. I love them. Wordtoday.org at gmail.com. See you next time.